This is from the Gospel of John, chapter 6. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him... God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works of God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him. I finally lost my place. (laughs) 45, thanks, Bob. (laughs) And learn from him comes to me. Sorry, let me start that again. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. 
Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, as we take time to remember that you broke into our world to reconcile us to you, would you help us to wrestle with who you truly are, not who we perceive you to be? Spirit, would you come, quiet our hearts, let us hear the voice of Jesus as he says, come and eat of me. We pray this in his name. Amen. This first I am statement from the Gospel of John takes place in a chapter that is just chock full of symbolism. So it's going to require us to get a little bit of the context, as if that passage wasn't long enough. There's even more context that we have to get into in order to understand what Jesus is telling the people of the crowd. And once we've engaged with that context, we're going to see how the crowd interacts with Jesus. And hopefully we'll see ourselves in that interaction. And from that lens, I'd like us to look at three things in this passage. The Jesus we want, the Jesus that is, and the scandal of the gospel. These I am statements are are packed full of meaning because in the Old Testament... When the creator God came down and met with Moses and made a covenant with the people of Israel, he referred to himself as Yahweh. He said, I am that I am. That was the name that he gave himself. And so when Jesus stands up in front of Jewish people and says the words, I am, he's already saying a very, very loaded statement before he even begins to unpack a metaphor. And what Jesus is doing is he's retelling the Hebrew scriptures in front of a Jewish audience to show them and to show us that everything that happened to Israel in their history, everything that is said in their scriptures, ultimately points to him and him alone. Just prior to this passage that we just read from John 6, John records for us the story of Jesus feeding a multitude of people. Jesus feeds over 5,000 men, and at that time, men usually denoted like a head of a household. And so the miracle that we see is, is miraculous, it's magnificent, it's epic. He feeds probably ten to 15,000 people. And as the story goes, he feeds the people by the Sea of Galilee. Later that night, he walks across the water to meet his disciples in their boat. And throughout the rest of John chapter 6, the people murmur and complain against Jesus. If we were to look back to the record of the exodus of Israel from Egypt, we would see those same three things. God feeds people miraculously, the people walk across water to get to the land, and they murmur and complain almost the whole way. And what Jesus is doing, everything that he does and says is revealing himself as the true Israel, leading the true exodus. He is here for one purpose, to free humanity from enslavement. Instead of just leading a particular nation, like Israel, like Moses did with Israel, leading them out of Egypt. Instead of leading a particular group of people to a particular place, Jesus is here to lead the exodus of the entire world from enslavement to sin. But Jesus has a very particular idea of what that enslavement is and how his mission of redemption is going to be carried out. 
We'll talk more about that as we get to the scandal of the gospel. But in this story of John, we see that at this point in Jesus' ministry, he has a very large following. Twelve to 15,000 people following him around, and we're told at the beginning of chapter 6 that the people were following him because he had been working miracles in their midst. He had been healing sickness, blindness. He'd been raising people from the dead, healing lepers. The people were in awe of Jesus. They were curious to see if he was the one who was to come, the one who was promised. Because way back in Deuteronomy 18, God, through Moses, had made a promise to his people Israel that one day a prophet even greater than Moses would come and lead the people of God. Throughout the Old Testament, there are really cryptic hints as to what this prophet will be like. He became to be called the one or the man or the Messiah. And there are very cryptic um, descriptions of who he would be, but one of the rumors surrounding what his ministry would look like when the Messiah, when that prophet actually came on the scene, would be that he would actually feed God's people with bread from heaven, just like Moses had done. And so when the people see Jesus feeding them, miraculously, a light clicks on in their head. And they begin to say, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. He's here. We have waited for centuries. Our fathers, our grandfathers, our great-grandfathers, all of them lived in exile, and we still live in exile in our own land under the power of Rome. But now the prophet is here. And the people begin to sense that the promises of God are being fulfilled in their midst, and they are ready to make a move. They're ready for an exodus from the power of Rome, and they come to a very important decision. Jesus should be king. That's what they want. Talk about change we can believe in. I mean, this is a political advisor's dream, right? He's polling at 100%. Imagine the welfare plan that could be enacted when you have a king that can heal the sick and feed thousands of people from just one boy's lunch. Not bad. And imagine what he'll do as our king to throw off the Romans. He'll lead us as we trample our enemies underfoot and we will finally be vindicated as the people of God. Just like the wall of Jericho fell for Joshua, so the wall of Roman power will fall for this Jesus, this Yeshua. They even have the same name. It's uncanny. Get ready for miracles, power, and vengeance. This was the Jesus the people wanted. The Jesus who would liberate them from what they saw as their captors. The captors of hunger, sickness, and political enemies. The theologian Leslie Newbegin reminds us that this is not actually faith. What the people are expressing is not faith but unbelief. He says they have not understood who Jesus is. Jesus will not be the instrument of any human enthusiasm or the symbol for any human program. To say Jesus is king is true only if the word king is wholly defined by the person of Jesus. It is false and blasphemous if Jesus is made instrumental to a definition of kingship kingship derived from elsewhere. Jesus has come to proclaim liberty to the captives, yes, but he will not become the mascot for a people's movement of liberation. Because 
The Jesus that is refuses to be a this world type of king. The kings of this world coerce. They use right-handed power wielding swords. The kings of this world steal bread from others or demand it as a sign of allegiance and then divide it up among those who help them accomplish their mission. And Jesus tells the people plainly, you're seeking the wrong bread. You think Moses fed you in the desert? Don't you remember Moses himself told you in the law that you were fed with manna to learn that you are brought to life by feeding on the very word of God? Moses didn't give bread in the past. God the Father did. And he is now giving you the bread of life, the food that endures to eternal life. And I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Stop being distracted by your own agenda. The signs that I've been performing, the reason that you're following me, I've performed these signs for the exact same reason that all those signs were performed in Egypt, to point you to me. You remain only able to see the things I do for you and unable to see me because you come to me with your own agenda. Jesus tells the people, you want me to be a king of your definition. You want me to fix a problem that you have assessed in a manner that you find appropriate. Yet you fail to see that the Father has stamped me with his seal, and I am here on the business of the Trinity with an offering of eternal life. I am the bread come down from heaven. Well, at this point, the people begin to grumble, just like their forefathers did. Jesus says, I'm the bread come down from heaven, and they start to scratch their heads and say, who does this guy think he is? The muffin man? I mean, we know where you grew up. You grew up in that dingy house right next to Joseph's carpentry shop. Where do you get off saying that you came from heaven? We know your parents. They're people just like us. Your dad's a blue-collar guy. How do you claim to be on par with the God of all things? Now, for those of us who like to think of Jesus as a good teacher, we have some reckoning to do here. How does a good teacher consistently confound, confuse, and enrage his students? No university in the world is going to give this guy tenure, right? Anybody in the room in business? You want this guy doing your PR for you? In one day, he goes from having a followership of thousands to a handful in one conversation. We live in a world where the truth is massaged, reshaped, repackaged, reworded. And don't get me wrong, there's a place for tact. If you don't like my sermon, be tactful. There's a place for consideration. There's a time to withhold information. But when we let Jesus talk for himself, he is very, very offensive. In just this short interchange, he says four things that are hugely offensive. First, he says, you can't get to me unless the Father draws you. Second, he says, if you don't get to me, you don't have life. Then he says, once you do get to me, you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, and then you'll have life. And then he says, this offer is for everyone. And immediately, those of us inside the church, those of us that say we're still outside the church, we all cringe, regardless of our proclivities for justice or mercy, for vengeance or for forgiveness. 
We want to clean up everything he just said. Much like his disciples try to do a few verses later as they see thousands of people fleeing for the hills. They can't get away from him fast enough. And his disciples say, this is a hard saying. And that's code. That's respectful code for, what in the world are you doing? Have you lost your mind? We were on the verge. We were ready to make it happen. And you just drove everybody away. But you see, friends, if we've come here this morning happy with ourselves for searching out Jesus, following him to get answers, we've missed the point. Some of us want a Jesus who will coddle us in our postmodern sensibilities of pluralism, human freedom, and relativism. And yet what we find is a Jesus who is unflinching in his resolve that he alone is the bread of life. The food of other religions will not give life. It is Jesus alone. Others of us want a Jesus who will make us feel special, a part of the exclusive club that we've found and entered. But Jesus remains unflinching in his resolve that we have found nothing. We have been found by Jesus alone. And not because we're special, not because he's exclusive. Odds are, if you're in this room this morning, you're probably a Christian. You're probably even a Reformed Christian, but no matter what your views of predestination might be, we have to reckon with the fact that the offer that he gives to us is given to all people. Anyone may come and eat of this bread of life and live. Anyone. Some of us, though, we want a moralist Jesus, the one who will give us some extra credit on our moral exam for going the extra mile. And sure, we can admit we've missed a few questions here and there, but we're not like those people. There are people out there that hate Jesus, and we want him to take a big red pen and write an F at the top of their exam. For those whose immorality offends us, we cry for moralist Jesus to come and judge with quickness and fairness. And yet Jesus, the Jesus that is, remains unflinching in his resolve that we're all dead. There is no half dead, no better dead person or worse dead person, just dead. And his mission is crystal clear. He is here to give life, not to deserving people, just dead ones. Some of us want helpful Jesus, and we would love it if this guy were king. This is the Jesus who addresses the needs that we think we have The Jesus who will keep us from distress in this life. The Jesus who will give us liberation from our job or our joblessness. The Jesus who will give us health and wealth. But this Jesus, the Jesus that actually is, remains unflinching in his resolve that we don't even know what our true needs are. And what is our true need? The answer that he gives We need him. Rather than a king who would come and rally us behind him, promising to restore our rights and privileges by ousting our oppressors, we need a king who will dwell among us, who will whisper to us that we are indeed dead and bring to us the wine of his own blood and bid us to drink deeply. We need the one who would envelop our own death with his own 
and whisper to us that we are indeed alive with life eternal. St. Paul had said, we are dead and our life is hid with Christ on high. The gospel is scandalous. It's restrictive. Only through Jesus can life be found. It's also inclusive. Jesus did not wait for us to come to him. He came to the world that through him the world might have life. The gospel is nonsensical. The life of God for the life of the world, the creator giving himself for the creature. Perhaps the most difficult part of this scandalous gospel is the answer to the question posed to Jesus earlier in our passage. What do we have to do? What can we do to empower ourselves to get out of this mess? I'd be willing to bet that almost all of us in this room want a Jesus who will require us to do something. If we can even get to the place where we're able to admit that, yes, we have messed things up, at least give us the dignity to figure a way out of it ourselves. Jesus, what must we do? The answer the offensive, non-empowering, scandalous, undignified, self-esteem-bursting, useless-feeling answer? Nothing. Be dead. Be good and dead. Be bad and dead. It makes no difference, really. Leave your agenda behind you and let the Spirit of God open your heart to this scandalous gospel. The news that God himself took on flesh and died at the hands of his enemies that he might make them his brothers. Perhaps this morning for the first time, you're just starting to take hold of Christ in faith. You're taking hold of Jesus as he is, not as you want him to be. If that's the case, then I invite you to speak with myself or another leader here about what that means and how you can join his church. But if you've already placed your faith in Christ and you've been joined to his church in baptism, perhaps you're realizing this morning that you have built up a faux Jesus in your own mind. Perhaps for weeks or months or years, you've been coming to Jesus as you want him to be. A Jesus who agrees with your politics, your moralism, your exclusiveness. A Jesus who tells you that you're fine on your own, rather than Jesus as he is, the Jesus of life, the bloodied, humble king whose law is love. If that's the case, then I invite you to this table to grab hold in faith to the bread of life, the offensive, scandalous, wonderful bread Just as Jesus broke bread and gave it to the multitude after giving thanks, after speaking the word Eucharist, which means thankfulness, so this is the bread of his body and the wine of his blood that has been broken for the multitude of the world. And we call it the Eucharist. The table of thankfulness that he has done everything.
and his life is ours. Will you be offended or will you come and eat of the bread of life? Let's pray. Jesus, you have done everything. And though we have tried to erect false Christ in our own hearts, you are far more wonderful than anything we could have ever designed. We need you and we thank you so much for entering our world and making us your brothers and sisters. Would you meet with us now as we come to your table and worship you in thankfulness? We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.